Today we are in Luke chapter 13. We continue in verse 31 down to verse 35. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem! The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we have opened up to your word, we ask that you would open up our hearts and search us deep within. Would your spirit penetrate deep into the recesses of our hearts and minds and thoughts and speak to us there through your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. During the age of the Old Testament, Throughout that vast period of time, all the way from Exodus to the end of the Old Testament, God chose to reveal himself to the world in a very specific way. That is, through the nation of Israel. And part of that entailed God choosing to localize his presence on earth within a distinct geographical uh, territory. The boundaries of which he, he marked and gave to his chosen nation, Israel. And that's why Israel was considered the holy land, the land that God had set apart from all other lands and territories on earth. And within that land, within the land of Israel, was the capital city, Jerusalem, also called the holy city. Because inside this one city on earth was the physical temple of God built by Solomon in which God's manifest glory resided. His actual presence mysteriously, wonderfully was there in Jerusalem, inside the temple. And so the city of Jerusalem was like the Holy of Holies on earth on a global scale. Hence, it was called the Holy City. And it's no wonder that the Old Testament Uh, speaks of this city so eminently and so affectionately. Psalm 122, verse 2, King David cries out, O Jerusalem, built as a city, bound firmly together, to which the tribes of the Lord go up. O Jerusalem, he says. In Psalm 137, verse 5 says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. You see, Jerusalem, the city, was, it was the prize of God, his holy city which housed and displayed his glory. And so Jerusalem was the darling of Israel. And more importantly, the darling of God, the city of God. But fast forward... Centuries later, 
Here is Jesus in the first century, the Son of God himself, pronouncing woes, judgment, and complete destruction of the city. Apparently, this holy city had degenerated, and now in God's eyes, it had become an unholy city. In fact, as we'll see, Jerusalem had actually become the unholiest city in God's eyes, more unholy than any other city on earth. What happened? How did it get to this point? It's because the people of Jerusalem grew proud. Now, all Israel was proud, but Jerusalem was the proudest. Because being residents of the holy city, they began to believe that there was something special about them, that they were innately holier and thus untouchable. Innately holier than everybody else, because after all, they live in the holy city, the, the religious hotspots. Uh, they're, they're more religious than anybody else because of where they live and what they're surrounded by. And so they became puffed up in pride and self-righteousness. And as a result, they were the ones who were most opposed to God in the end. I mean, think about it. Where was the Son of God crucified on earth? Of all places on earth. Not Sodom and Gomorrah. Not Egypt. But none other than Jerusalem. The so-called holy city. You see, here's the lesson. Okay, here's the great irony of it all. The greatest enemies of God are not the pagans, not the heathens, but rather the greatest enemies of God are the quote-unquote good religious people. No one persecuted the church more than Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. And Saul of Tarsus was, was the paragon of a man in full pursuit of religious virtue and merit. He was a good religious man. He called himself blameless in Philippians chapter 3. Pharisee of Pharisees. Now what is the reason for this irony? How is it that the, these good religious folks are in fact the most vicious enemies of God? It's because they are self-righteous. Swelling with pride deep inside. Such that when push comes to shove... And they are confronted with the message of salvation that calls for, hear it now, humble repentance. They won't do it. They hate it. Because it grinds against their self-esteem. What a good person they think themselves to be. No matter what they might say on the outside, they, they secretly despise the thought of repentance because they don't really believe that they need to repent. And they, they, they've never known the, the spirit of true repentance to come before God as a broken-hearted sinner in humble contrition. Friends, the church and churches are filled with such people. They're unwilling to do such a thing, to come before God in humble repentance because they are too proud of themselves. And so they despise God and they reject his gospel, regardless of how religious or how pious they appear on the outside. You see, out of everyone on earth, it's the religious and the self-righteous that are most hostile to God in the inner depths of their hearts. Because while God opposes the proud, as we know, 
It's equally true that the proud oppose God. But by contrast, the Lord delights in the humble and in the brokenhearted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, because they know themselves to be poor sinners before God. They see themselves as spiritual beggars. And Jesus said, blessed are they for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the riches of the full inheritance of God's grace and delight. Now, church, we all need to understand that God looks at our hearts. And he knows what's really, really in there. He sees through outward appearances, just as he saw through the city of Jerusalem, which was holy in name and appearance only. And so here, as Jesus laments over Jerusalem, he's, he's exposing their hypocrisy and bringing to surface the, the real underlying hostility So as to prove to us that the religious self-righteous are truly God's greatest enemies and under the greatest spiritual danger. And this passage begins here with one day, some Pharisees approach Jesus. Now notice how it begins. It begins with, at that very hour. Now you read that and you think, at what very hour? Well, what, what was the passage that came just before it? It's the passage on the narrow door of salvation, as Jesus said. Few will find it. Many, many, many will seek the wide door. And so Luke here is linking this passage with that previous passage that we just saw a couple months ago, actually, not last week. But, but the point there was that to everyone's surprise, the door of eternal life is narrow. Many will fail to enter it, even amongst those who ate and drank in his presence. Many churchgoers, many good religious people. And so with this thematic link established, Luke proceeds to tell us about a handful of Pharisees who approach Jesus and give him what seems to be a friendly warning. Verse 31, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now this Herod was Herod Antipas, who ruled over the region of Galilee and Perea. Uh, He was ruling under the authority of the Roman government. And this was the same Herod, as we know, who had beheaded John the Baptist. Now, where is this death threat coming from? Why would Herod want to kill Jesus? Well, it's most likely that this threat was a ploy to get Jesus to run for his life, to run away from the Galilee region where he was ministering in public. Why? Because again, the region of Galilee was Herod's jurisdiction. It was his political domain and arena. And given how immensely popular Jesus was becoming in the public sphere, Herod would have wanted to find some way to get Jesus out of the picture so as to remove all competing spotlight for his political purposes and gain. And so he sends this death threat to Jesus, delivering the message via some Pharisees who were probably not sincerely concerned for Jesus' safety, but were likely colluding with Herod in some way to try to get Jesus out of Galilee as well in their interest. Now, why do I say this? Because Jesus calls Herod a fox. Verse 32, that was not a compliment. He wasn't saying Herod was foxy and beautiful. But it was a term used to refer to a sly, conniving person. Jesus knew that there was trickery going on. Now, how would this be in the Pharisees' interest to get Jesus out of Galilee? Well, because the natural course of leaving Galilee would be to go south to the region of Judea, home of the city of Jerusalem, 
which is exactly where they would have wanted Jesus to be. Because in Judea was a much higher concentration of Pharisaic Jews. It was the religious metropolis filled with more of their kind and how much more inside the so-called holy city Jerusalem. And so Judea, you see, was their turf where they would have more power and public sway to use against Jesus. And that's actually exactly what happened once Jesus got there. The public opposition intensified. They had, I guess you could say, home court advantage. In any case here, both parties, Herod and the Pharisees, were likely at work to funnel Jesus down to Jerusalem with the end result of destroying him. But Jesus saw through it all. And so he responds in verse 32, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now this phrase, today, tomorrow, and the third day, uh, it was an idiomatic expression referring to a definite predetermined period of time. And so by saying this, Jesus was sending the message to Herod. You think you can manipulate me? You think your threats and schemes have any hold over me? You think I'm afraid of you? Listen, you fox, my life and the course of it all is set exactly according to the sovereign plan of God. Herod, you don't get to decide when I die. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, as Jesus said in John 10, 18. But Jesus continues in verse 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. Now, why does Jesus say nevertheless? Because he is going to go to Jerusalem. He will be killed. And it will be what Herod and the Pharisees wanted. So it'll seem like their plan succeeded. But Jesus is making it clear. I am willingly going to Jerusalem. It's not your plan. It is God's sovereign plan. In fact, back in chapter 9, verse 51, if you remember some months ago, we we, we noted that this verse is one of the key turning points in Luke's gospel. That when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And every step from then on was an intentional step towards the cross. And even in chapter 13, just before this, in verse 22, it says he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Jesus never forgot. Every step was headed towards Jerusalem. And so Jesus here is saying, I know what awaits me there. And that's what I've come to do. You see, what's important here is not ultimately this exchange with Herod. Who cares about Herod? He's just a, a distraction. This whole back and forth with Herod is just a setup for the real thrust of this passage, which is how Jesus views and speaks of Jerusalem. The key point is not when Jesus will die, nor the fact that he will die, but where he will die. Jerusalem of all places. Notice the rhetoric with which Jesus speaks of the so-called holy city. It's almost, you can almost sense the sarcasm. He says, verse 33, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be 
that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. It, it would practically be wrong for me to die and be killed anywhere else. It needs to be in Jerusalem. Because that's what happens in Jerusalem. It's the murder house of God's messengers. That's where all the true prophets go to be killed. Y'all think it's the holy city. No, I tell you, Jerusalem is the unholiest city that kills God's holy prophets. Jesus had a very different view of Jerusalem than the Jews did back in his day. He saw Jerusalem as the most vicious rejectors of God, despite all of the external appearances of, oh, look, at here's a temple. Oh, look at all these sacrifices, all the worship going on. Oh, look at all the plethora of, of synagogues. But in God's eyes, Jerusalem was the worst offender and the worst opposer. Case in point, clearly demonstrated by the track record, which Jesus brings up in verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. That's their track record. I mean, think about the history of the Old Testament. I mean, time would fail to run through every instance of the suppression and murder of God's prophets. But if you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, it gives us probably the best summary statements that we could find in the Old Testament. It's the last chapter of 2 Chronicles. And it recounts how Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians after all of those years and centuries of, of refusing God's prophets. And in recounting Judah's history, it says in Second Chronicles 36, verse 14, that all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. First of all, do you, do you see that? The concept of Jerusalem being an unholy city is not new. Jesus didn't make that up. It's always been like that. They, consecrate, they desecrated the city that God had consecrated. In verse 15, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. That stubbornness and that pride. And as Nehemiah explicitly confessed in his prayer a century later in Nehemiah 9.26, we were disobedient and rebelled against you and we killed your prophets who warned us to turn back to you. And that really gets to the heart of the matter as to why Jerusalem was so violently opposed to God's prophets. Because the message of the true prophets throughout the Old Testament, I mean, I know there's a lot of prophets in the Old Testament, but at the end of the day, their message is one, and it's pretty simple. It was just a call to repent. It's on every other page in the Old Testament. The false prophets, by contrast, what were they preaching? Always giving a, a false sense of assurance. Oh, it's okay. Oh, God loves you just the way you are. You don't have to repent. You're just fine. Oh, look, you're, you're so wonderful on the outside. What the true prophets were saying. This thus says the Lord, as Amos said, I hate 
your sacrifices. I hate your feasts. I hate all of the religious stuff that you do. You think I am impressed by that? I am calling for a broken heart. And as King David said, and he realized in his own heart in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart. Contrition, repentance. That's the sacrifice that God looks for. But the people of Israel, especially in Jerusalem, well, they couldn't fathom why they should ever repent. Now, for sure, the Gentiles, they need to repent, but not us. And so Jeremiah 5, God says, go and search the streets of Jerusalem and see if there's anyone who seeks the truth. And I'll forgive them. But what does God say? But they all refuse to repent. And in the same way, this pattern continued centuries later when John the Baptist began his ministries. Oh, the Pharisees hated him. Why? What was John's message? What was he preaching? It says that John the Baptist came onto the scene proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Do you know how insulting that was to the Jews? Baptism was something to be seen for only the Gentiles, for the proselytes. That they need to be cleansed and be grafted into the community of Israel. But John was saying, you guys don't understand. You all need to be cleansed. You're all unclean. Ooh, they hated that. And John went so far as to say, he anticipated the self-justification of the Pharisees, and he said, do not even begin to say, I know what you're thinking, I know what you're going to say, don't even begin to say, oh, but we have Abraham as our father, we have this religious heritage. I tell you, God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. They didn't like John the Baptist. And that, because he offended all the self-righteous who thought they were worthy of God's favor. And again, this is exactly how things went throughout Acts in the early history of the church. Read Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. As Stephen stood before the religious council and as he was preaching, you know, it's really interesting. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, his sermon, it's actually pretty long. He was kind of a long-winded fellow. He started, it was a pretty simple message, but he started giving an entire history lesson on Israel. And what's interesting is that it appears that the Jews who are listening, they bear with it and they go, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, so the exodus happened. I remember that. Uh-huh, and then we wandered in the wilderness. Yep, I remember that. But where did they cut off Stephen? It's in verse 51 when he began to say, he pointed the barrel at them and he said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He confronted them of their sinful nature. You think, he, you think your circumcision, your outward circumcision means anything? You're uncircumcised in heart. You're a Gentile in heart. And so it says in verse 54, that when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. And they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Do not underestimate the rage of the self-righteous when they are told that they are unrighteous. 
People who believe deep inside that they're good and implicitly deserving of God's blessing. They hate being told that they are not good. And that they are depraved sinners before God's holy eyes. And that's why the true gospel is rejected most stubbornly by religious people, by churchgoers who seem quite put together on the outside, upright and hardworking and all of that, because they are most easily self-impressed, and thus they are the last ones to believe that they are sinners who have offended the holy God, and that they need to cry out for his mercy and pardon based on not what they've done and what they can do for God, but entirely based on what Jesus has done for sinners. They're proud of who they are. They're proud of what they've achieved, their talents, and their life choices. And there's not a hint of knowing any sorrow over their sin, and thus knowing the sweetness of the forgiveness of sin. These, my friends, are the most offensive to God, because God is most offensive to them. You know, of all the kinds of people I meet out in the world, I can tell you that I am most concerned about the souls of those who say, oh, you're a pastor. They love that. Oh, I go to church too. Oh, that's great. But in the span of the conversation, it becomes evident that Christianity is just a badge they wear. And proudly so, because it just represents good morals and community involvement, uh, being a good citizen. But where is the thankfulness to God for Christ? the humble joy of what Christ has done for them, the preciousness of the gospel, that is the good news for bad people who know themselves and confess themselves to be bad because they know that no one is good, no one is righteous. Who can stand before God and dwell in His holy presence? He who walks blamelessly, never lies, does no evil, is perfectly selfless. This is Psalm 15. And Psalm 15 says, He who does all these things shall never be moved. And it is the Christian who says, Who then can be saved? Because I am not Psalm 15. Who is sufficient for these things? But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord, because He is sufficient. He is Psalm 15 for me. And my trust and hope is in Him. I mean, isn't that amazing that throughout all of redemptive history, all that God has required of sinners is simply to confess that they could not do what God requires and simply to turn to Him for undeserved help and trust Him to give that help and mercy which He has given in Christ. This is the kernel of true repentance and salvation. It requires humbling yourself, realizing your true neediness and poverty with a broken-hearted spirit. And when you look to God in such humble contrition and faith, He gives everything. He loves those who repent. He loves the needy and the lowly. He has never, ever, 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 ever refused anyone who comes to him confessing their sin. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. Because this is who God is. Merciful and gracious. 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He delights in the lowly because the glory of his grace is magnified only in the lowly. And this is how willing God is to forgive anyone who repents. No sinner goes to hell because God is unwilling to save them. But the problem is that the proud and the self-righteous are the most unwilling to humble themselves and come to him in faith. Verse 34, Jesus laments this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. How willing I am, but you are not willing. But do you see here what amazing pity and compassion from Jesus that anyone who comes to him He will take under his wings, as it were, with the tender affection of a mother toward her chicks. You know, as many of you know, I I grew up here in the Bay Area, and so I know the Bay Area pretty well, the culture and everything. And I never thought I'd be back home where I grew up doing ministry. Uh, Just wasn't top of mind. I didn't expect it or assume it. But when it was made clear that the Lord was bringing me here to the Bay uh, to preach the gospel in the East Bay, uh, I knew my first thought was that it would be a tremendous challenge. Because knowing the, I suppose, the demographic here, uh, the economic status and conditions here, I knew that I'd be speaking in general just in this whole area Uh, to fairly decent citizens, for the most part, who perhaps have a lot of reasons to be proud, humanly speaking, and that I would have to somehow convince them that they need the grace of God. But then I have to say that over time, I'm beginning to feel less intimidated by this and by all the semblance of decency and uprightness Because I've come to realize just how broken and polluted everyone is by sin and darkness. No matter what image they put forth before the public eye. The only difference is that here where we live, it's just that people have learned to cover it up better. They've learned more social cues, I suppose, to put up a front. And they have the means to fortify those walls that cover their own darkness. And I'm also growing to understand just how much we, as adults, are actually just a bunch of oversized children at the end of the day. You know, we're just, we're just as, if not more, insecure than the little ones. Everyone's trying to keep up appearances. And some just try harder than others. And as such, I've come to realize that the, that the loudest and the proudest of them all are actually the most brittle and the most damaged and have the most to hide. Perhaps they are the most weighed down by sin and guilt, but as a defense mechanism, 
they hunker down on pride and self-righteousness because they can't dare face the reality of their dark hearts. And so they try to convince themselves and everyone else that they're not as bad as the Bible makes them out to be. It's a coping mechanism. We're all just little insecure children. But if I can speak to anyone in this room still holding on to your self-righteousness for dear life and still resisting the gospel, I just want to tell you, you don't have to pretend with Jesus. He already knows and sees through it all. But not only that, it's safe with him. You can let it go and grab hold of him instead. He'll cover you under the shadow of his wings. He won't harm you. He won't use it against you. He won't condemn you if you come to him because that's what he came to do. To bear your condemnation on the cross. You don't have to keep deceiving yourself that you're a good person out of an attempt to preserve whatever sense of self-worth. Because the good news of the gospel is that your worth is found in Christ alone, in who he is, and what he has done by the course of his life, death, and resurrection that he finished once for all. And if you would just humble yourself and repent, he will receive you as his own. Just as a mother hen takes her frail little chicks under her wings. This is the grace of God who tenderly embraces all who repent and put their trust in him. But for those who insist unto the end on refusing his grace, those who are adamant that they are good people who do not deserve God's judgment, who believe that they can withstand God's judgment in the end, they will get what they stubbornly ask for. They'll undergo God's judgment and it won't be pretty. That's what happened to Jerusalem as a city. They refused to humble themselves in repentance despite many, many warnings. And so it happened just as Jesus foretold in verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. Your house is left desolate. And if you know your history, that's what happened in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus issued these warnings. Jerusalem was utterly destroyed by the Romans. And if you read the accounts of the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, it is horrific. But it was God's judgment. And Jesus says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from Psalm 118. And Jesus was saying, this judgment won't be lifted unless you can pray in the spirit and words of Psalm 118. Now, what does Psalm 118 say? We don't have the time to do the whole exposition of it, but I'll just summarize it for you. Psalm 118, it begins... By praising God for His grace. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. The self-righteous say, give thanks. Thank God. They'll say, thank God for I am good. 
But Psalm 118 begins, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love, His grace endures forever. And it proceeds to confess that it is better to trust God than in man, to put your hope in God. And then it asks God to open the gate of righteousness. And then it cries out, Save us, O Lord. Hosanna. That's what it means. Save us. Rescue us. Deliver me, O God. Save me by your gate of righteousness. You see, Psalm 118, it is the prayer of gospel salvation in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the one who says, I am the gate of the sheep. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and find pasture. Find rest from the burden of sin that you could never bear. And church, this is our humble confession and proclamation that Christ is our righteousness. This is the the cry of the church that we are so happy to say and confess. We are great sinners, but Christ is our great Savior. This is the anthem of the true holy city. The new Jerusalem, which Revelation 21 tells us, is the bride of Christ, his church. This is always God's plan that he would build his new Jerusalem. As Jesus said, I will build my church and no gates of hell will stand against it. What is the church? It is the assembly of sinners from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Sinners, unworthy sinners who have confessed and repented of sin, and received freely and fully by faith Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is God's precious holy city, the church. And so you see, the heartbeat of the church, the hallmark of the Christian, must be a humble thankfulness in Christ. You know, if we as NBC, if we could just be a church, Filled with contrite sinners, saved by grace. And just be a congregation filled with people who are humbly amazed by God's mercy toward us. I know God will be glorified. And everything else will take care of itself if we could just have that gospel heart of thankfulness and praise to God. And so may God protect us from pride. Far be it from us at this church to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we boast in Christ alone, may it be that through us, the world might witness the glory of the new Jerusalem, the darling of Christ, his precious church for whom he laid down his life and for which he alone deserves all glory and praise. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending us so sufficient and merciful a Savior who did what we could never do, who took our place, fulfilled the law, and paid the penalty of sin. Lord, we are filled with thanksgiving because we know that all that we are and all that we have is entirely in Christ alone. Help us to embrace that more and more. 
and that we might carry forth a spirit of true humility and contrition because we believe that in it our highest joy is found as we taste greater depths of the sweetness of the gospel. And we thank you for giving to us the gift of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper by which you tangibly remind us that we are sinners, weak, feeble, and unable who could never feed ourselves and provide for ourselves, but we have come to Christ who has given himself to us that we might feed on him. Help us to receive these elements by faith and use these ordinary elements to extraordinarily minister and confirm the gospel to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.